Welcome to They Came From Outer Space, a radio program where we talk to filmmakers and buffs about their favorite sci-fi film or show and how it relates to their own work and today's wild world. I'm filmmaker Cameron Kitt, also known on WRIR as DJ Lilas, and you're listening to WRIR LP 97.3 FM. I'm here today with Andy Tao, and we are going to talk about the episode of The Twilight Zone, Long Distance Call. For in a moment, a child will try to cross that bridge which separates light and shadow, that indistinct highway through the region we call the Twilight Zone. Andy, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. This is great. I'm so happy we can talk about uh, this particular episode and Twilight Zone because I know you've had some experience talking to people on the show. Um, The name of the Inciting Incident episode, it was a 50th anniversary special, right, that you worked on? Yes, it was the actually, it was the sixtieth anniversary of Twilight Zone. Sixtieth. Yeah, it's it's that old. <laughs> it's that old, and it's still so good. I mean, I found myself thinking while I was rewatching it, what other show do people regular regularly rewatch every year? Like my family and I, we we watch Twilight Zone every New Year's, you know, on the reruns. I can't think of another show from the sixties besides maybe Star Trek that has that lasting power, you know. I love Lucy. Oh, okay. But, yeah, I'm but, sure there could but, be like thousands getting... of answers, actually. <laughs> yes, um, but but I think that's very a lot smaller market now or smaller demographic that is still interested in I Love Lucy, but um, but I think it's going to come back ever since WandaVision is oh, now yeah, alive. Right. But it's just interesting. Twilight Zone was seen as niche in the beginning, and now it's got this lasting power. But we'll get into that. First, I want to introduce everyone to you. For those who don't know Andy Tao, he's a powerhouse cinematographer, photographer, and producer, a recent New York City transplant from LA. He has a business degree from the Art Institute, as well as editing software certifications from University of New Mexico and photo and cinematography certs from Pasadena College. He has not one, not two, but nine production companies, which he spread out as a way to support women and people of color in film, which is very cool. He's worked on numerous documentaries, films, and including multiple anniversary features, like it's for Star Trek and Twilight Zone, like we just mentioned, as well as a universal ride ad for one of my favorite films, Pacific Rim. Recently, one of An- the films Andy worked on called The Year I Did Nothing made it to streaming on Amazon and has good reviews, so go check that out. Um, but before he worked in film full-time, he was a punk musician, owned a music studio, and was the IT director of a huge company called Legacy Entertainment, among about 150 other things. So... His latest endeavor is called Andrew Tao Creative. You can find it on the web. AndrewTaoCreative.com. Andrew Tao Creative. That's T-O-W-E. And we'll tell you more about that a little later on. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's a little bit about you. It's, uh, his, new, his new adventure is a firm where he focuses on TV and film, feature films. And I think he has some big things in the works. So... Um, yeah, dude, that's just a that's just a little slice about Andy. Uh, that's that's a lot. I didn't think I accomplished that much stuff in my life, especially for for where I came from, a, you know, a small little town called Bakersfield. But I guess then again, you know, the band Corn came from there as well. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You gotta eclipse that. You gotta eclipse Corn. Gotta go bigger. Uh, yeah. So, Andy, why did you pick this episode? Why is it your favorite episode of The Twilight Zone? It, it it's so weird Com- compared to the e- other episodes like you know how to serve man mm-hmm. and it it's like 
it doesn't even meet the top 50 and it, it's not an iconic episode but for me it's iconic and i you know we're in a way it's nostalgia because it's one of the episodes that i really remember uh seeing for the first time or just seeing twilight zone for the first time and it it really just registered with me that um I think I was more in tune with the imagination with the little boy that he was having that, you know, that he can talk with his grandma on the phone. I guess at the same time I was playing with Legos at the same time because you can almost make anything you want. But I thought it was the most interesting thing. But I was oblivious to all the other like hidden messages, um, what Ross Serling was really trying to do with the episode. But I was, you know, I really, you know, got attached to the little boy. And I'm like, I, you know, I get that. But now as an adult, and especially, you know, the past week, just rewatching the episode, I was just like, man, I, I never really registered so many things that were going on this episode. But, mm-hmm. but what really tied me into it is just really remembering the, the first episodes that I fully watched and enjoyed uh, as a kid. So you, how old were you, do you think? I'm going to guess I was six or seven years old. Oh my gosh! Well, yeah, of course you're gonna relate. That's a that Bill Mooney was seven when he when he recorded this, the little uh, Billy. Um, that's oh, so I, weird. Did, did were you also freakishly adorable when you were that age? Um. Uh, I, I I was a fat kid with a cat, so I I, I in in today's age, then yes, back then. You didn't then, have a koi no. pond in your backyard. I, I did not have sucks. a koi pond. Uh, I I don't think I knew what a koi pond was when I, when I was that old. <laughs> I knew what a goldfish was. That that's as far as it went. Well, if you haven't seen this episode or you can't remember it, let me jog your memory. Released in May of nineteen sixty one, this was the second episode, a twenty second episode in the second season. Long Distance Call was written by Charles Beaumont and Bill Idelson and directed by James Sheldon. It follows a young boy named Billy, played by seven year old Bill Moomy. Um, who maintains a connection with his grandmother, played by stage actress Lily Darvis, after her passing through a wooden telephone. It's actually based on a short story called Direct Line by Idelson, which he submitted to the Twilight Zone, based on a real situation that he experienced with his own child on his second birthday after his mother gave his own son a toy telephone after staying with him, and the, he said this, the idea popped straight into his mind. It's one of the darker episodes and the last of six videotaped episodes of Twilight Zone. It's widely considered the best of those. And it's, um, I'm going to be real, rewatching, quite dark. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, Yes, definitely. Yeah, it's, I mean, to completely ruin the plot, um, which, which I will in just a moment after a quick spoiler message. Today's show will have many spoilers, including spoiling the entire show completely. Um, but our focus is on craft as well as content, so don't get mad because some studies show light spoilage actually increases your enjoyment of the film. But if you still want to go rewatch uh, the episode right now, it's uh, on Hulu for free, CBS All Access, and you can purchase them through Prime Video. Okay, so but to ru- ruin it, <laughs> ooh, ooh, but 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 while while people are rewatching it while it's already been ruined. One thing I did notice is there's a certain beat that you want to look for every minute. And every minute, there's something that is given away. Hmm. And I and I want you to look for it. And it's almost dead on. On the minute exactly, something happens. And it's so curated, like, so well. Like, I've only noticed it after watching it for, like, the eighth time. And I'm like, 
because I was make I was writing notes on the side and I was just like putting time code on there just because I'm so used to doing that as you know being post producer and I'm like, oh, I'm just gonna write this down, write that down. I'm like, wait, there's something happening every minute. But and this just is a, a little 25 insight. minute episode, you know, yes. it's like 22 minutes of action, so it's very economical, just like all of the episodes of the Twilight Zone are. Um, so yeah, I guess now you can go rewatch it, come back. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find your podcasts. But for those who are sticking with us, the crux of the episode, the reason why it is so dark is because it's insinuated that Grandma calls Billy to the afterlife to be with her. And that we're not sure, it's not revealed, you know, openly whether or not he is committing, whether he's like jumping into the koi pond on his own or whether she actually asked him. But it's basically insinuated attempted suicide, which is something that, I mean, for 1961 was incredibly cutting edge and really powerful. Um, but I think they handled it in a way that um, isn't as shocking, right? I mean, I just remember watching it thinking, I can't believe they did this, right? Um, yeah. Seven. It, <laughs> he was five it, in the show. The character was five years old. And, and, and especially since, like, there wasn't that much content on TV back in the day. So, mm-hmm. and I know there wasn't really much ratings or any any like holdbacks but i'm pretty sure like that had its own shock factor than like the whole twilight zone theme of you know any anything can happen through like a toy coming alive or aliens coming to earth but like you know a real actual human moment you know a bad negative human moment happens in this fictional world it's like I think it's like bringing reality in into a non-reality, you know, yeah. picture. Yeah. I mean, it's it, just like all Twilight Zone episodes. It does so much with so little, right? It's so effective. It's something that they always remind me of is, is a play. They're always, maybe that's what a lot of 60s TV is, but it's shot with very few sets, um, lots of like continuous camera movement, not a lot of crazy shots so that you really feel like you're there and the action is is continuous and you're not really pulled out of it you're pulled into it and you're pulled into the action um but you know if if you watched your first episode when you were six or seven i imagine you you guys as a family liked twilight zone is it something you watched as a kid with your family actually no it's just what it's one of those things to where my dad was so used of doing when he was a child where he just had it on just Mm -hmm. to have it on or it could have been like new year's or um i think it comes on like during another time that's very uh seasonal i think i know there's two moments uh i think it is new year's that twilight zone always airs and there's like Mm -hmm. another moment that's not as big but it's when uh sci-fi was was such a big channel but back in the you know mid 90s Mm -hmm. um but no it was just on and it just like it caught my eye and the funny thing is too is uh there were still black and white televisions in the 90s they were the portable tvs and Uh my dad used it for camping but i actually used it to watch the same thing my dad was watching on the color tv which was still a tube tv but i was watching it black and white when he was watching it on a color tv even though it was black and white itself i do remember that yeah very authentic way to experience the twilight zone um so you worked on that 60th anniversary special for Fathom Events. Andy, tell me, how did that get started for you? It it all started with uh, my one of my best friends and partners, Roger Lade Jr., who some of you might know as Mr. Star Trek, who does a lot of the Star Trek properties, a lot the older ones, not the newer ones, uh, for CBS slash Viacom. 
and we work a lot together on the most recent start uh old new old star trek projects um and then <laughs> cbs had reached out to him and he's the one who brought me on board and he's just like hey are you a fan of the twilight zone you, do you feel like uh knock, knock, knocking out a documentary i was like i was like twilight zone documentary like i'd never thought about it because you know n- nothing new about the twilight zone has has really been brought up except for um cbs access doing the new show which hasn't even aired yet and i was just like yeah, sure. You know, what was it about? Or what? What is it about? And he was just like, "Oh, it's it's mostly that we're gonna we're gonna remaster the the shows and bring it onto Blu-ray and DVD, and uh, we're gonna show a couple of the most famous episodes uh, in theater, but also it's gonna complement uh, a documentary." And I was like, "I was like, yeah, yeah, sign, sign me on board. We've been doing a lot of documentaries on a lot of nerdy things. I was like, sign me up." But then then I realized that what he was developing is it's actually the story of rod serling and how just an amazing person he is and and just trying to get as many uh people from his life to talk about him and talk about his journey how amazing of a human being he he is and he's like we're just gonna try to shove it all in an hour and a half and i'm like yes uh, did I already say yes? Yes. Sign, <laughs> sign me up. Yes. It's it's like I would I, be like I, never could I say no. There's no way I would be. Yeah. That's it's such a that's such a cool offer. So um, yeah, keep going. Like what what I guess what stood out to you when you guys were filming? The most what like th- this is what I really love about doing documentaries is learning and. And I know that a lot of us in this industry, like we can be very technical, we can be very creative, but what what drives that? What what makes that human being be interested in these things and tackle these challenges? And like doing documentaries, like lets you see the other side or the true side of someone, and just interviewing Rod's daughter and his old classmates and like seeing these handwritten notes essays to answer uh, students essays uh, just hearing his day-to-day life and how he is just as a regular human being which is crazy because it's exactly him every single time he introduced an episode or he intervenes every single time we go through act one of an episode it's just like that's him but like but you but it's like i don't know it's weird because like you're still seeing him as a narrator, you know, person of the show, but it's like, but he's really just being him. And, and it's kind of like the show is like, he's unlocking his mind and he wants you to come onto his journey. But at the same time, it's like, you know, we could have these thoughts, we can create these stories, but it's also, you know, I can still just be a regular human being and just hearing stories about how I, he was just a decent human being. He he was just very considerate of others. And I'm just like, we need more people like him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can tell it's just the way that people were speaking about him. And it's kind of like, you want to know this guy because he sounds like the perfect best friend <laughs> that anyone <laughs> can ever have. Yeah. And, and he shows that in his writing too. And like, I'm not a writer, but, and I'm not a really huge reader. Like I love manuals. Like I'll read the manual of my camera anytime, but then read a novel. And, but it's just like the way that he wrote things, I'm like, man, if he wrote a whole like 
book series or his version of Harry Potter, I would totally read it. I mean, he's a fantastic writer. A lot of the episodes he participated in or he wrote or he had the original idea for. And I, I didn't know. First of all, I didn't know he was Jewish. He grew up in New York and he started in radio. But that, yeah, it seems like from the stuff you're saying that he was such a supporter. I mean, he was called the angry young man of Hollywood because he clashed with TV execs so much about censorship and racism and yep. war. But I think it's really cool to see how um, how much of an impact his legacy has and, and how important these how important fantasy and sci-fi is to the public ethos. Right. Like it doesn't just because you're an anti-war um, anti-racist doesn't mean that you can't tell your stories that way through and talk about, you know, our values through sci-fi. Yeah, exactly. And and it's so interesting, too, because, like, I think sci-fi and fantasy pushes that envelope more than any other genre, mm-hmm. uh, mostly because, you know, I, I have to talk about Star Trek, but it's, you know, <laughs> the first interracial kiss, uh, you know, yep. in the Star Trek original series. It's like, you know, I, I know there's iconic moments in other genres of entertainment, but I'm like... I don't know, sci-fi and fantasy, you know, my two favorite genres, you know, they, they take the cake. I'm sorry. They won the reward of, they you are know, the put, best. They, they, they're pushing us forward where we need to be as human beings. And like, and I love that. And it's, and it's done in the most interesting, beautiful way. And I, I, I can't give enough credit to, you know, sci-fi and fantasy. Mr. Serling. So to bring it back to long distance call, um, his rod's intervention in this episode really came in the final monologue that the dad has you know kind of begging his mother to give him his son back he came in and changed that monologue up um i looked at i was able to like look at the before and after and the before was really about him as a boy and i know you didn't like this girlfriend i had mom growing up and the way that rod changed it was to make it about the the perspective future of his own son instead of talking about his past which is kind of touching on what you just talked about i mean in the final monologue he's like He's a little boy. He doesn't even know about wearing shorts or talking to girls or going to school. And he also changed the opening closing narrations. Um, so, I mean, that's how we think of Rod Serling, right? Is the man yeah. who introduced the Twilight Zone. His voice is so iconic. But he had such a strong hand in shaping the way that we perceive this, this content. And I, I love the final monologue. I particularly love the deathbed speech by the grandmother. I thought that was one of the best. Oh. Oh yeah, act. It's just the acting. The acting, though, really brought this episode together. It it's so funny you you bring up the acting because like one thing that really blows my mind it it most because like uh, I do a lot of uh, growing up or children's films because like I'm a huge fan of of E. T. Like just mm-hmm. combining uh, growing up stories with sci fi, but like watching this and see, seeing Billy like acting like doing these like mature emotes and i'm like mm-hmm. man for a seven-year-old it's like he's he's showing me up i'm like his performance was mm-hmm. done really well and i'm like it even for me like you know when i just did a feature film and i forgot to to cast uh, a certain someone that had you know five seconds of airtime i had to like cast myself to be that person and i did a horrible job and i've been working in film for a long time i am not an actor so billy or uh, I, I sorry, I forget your your actual his, name. His but... name is Bill. His name is his Bill Mooney. Oh. So we can call uh, him Billy. It's his all right, name. Billy. Congrats. I hope you hear this. Um, <laughs> you are amazing, and yeah, I that mean, was you, awesome. <laughs> one of something interesting. Bill really went on to have a great 
successful career i mean it's not always the case i mean he's he's yeah. had like a huge sci-fi career he's done like lost in space babylon 5 etc and that's really great because you know it's not always i but i have to wonder right about child acting don't you think maybe it this sounds so bad maybe it's a little bit easier because the boundary is not blurred like when you're a child there's not that sense of concern for what others think of you and fantasy is like a, such a regular part of your life and make-believe that i kind of wonder if it's easier to slip into character as a child I thought that before too until like I don't I don't want anyone to think outside really what I I I'm really going to say but being a huge fan of Macaulay Culkin and seeing how he struggled through life and he grew out of it and made him be him and then also working uh on like Justin Bieber music videos it's it's interesting maybe maybe it's just today's times but there is some real struggle of someone i want to say just missing their childhood i'm just going to keep it simple as that just Mm. not really being able to be them because i think the positive is what you just said about child acting but then again at the same time i think that they're missing the crucial part of development and the people who are able to really find a way to balance that and still succeed and uh and enjoy life like that's awesome and it sounds like you know bill really did that for himself and that that is great like but it's that also is rare not... right yes it's, it's rare because we see what happens to child actors right when you're deprived of your childhood child acting might not might i mean it might be extremely hard i've only worked with a few but the impact that being a child actor has on your life i mean have you watched um honey boy no, I, that, I, I, I really ooh, want to see it, though, because I know ooh, that, that that's going to explain a lot, especially in, t- in today's generation with child excellent. actors. It's so I had no idea that I had so much feeling for poor Shia LaBeouf. I didn't know. I mean, his dad would literally use cigarettes on him as a 12 year old to like train him to do. I mean, it's just insane. Anyway. Hey, why do you come over and play? Is it cold there? Who are you talking to? I want to talk a little bit about acting and personal experience. But first, you're listening to They Came From Outer Space on WIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. Okay, Andy, we're talking about uh, the episode of The Twilight Zone called Long Distance Call. It deals centrally with a very close relationship between a grandmother and her grandson, the one that the mother calls too close. Um what was your relationship with your grandmother's like? So on my dad's side, um, well, overall in general, I'm not as close to my family as I wish I was. Mm-hmm. Um, I am now building those relationships, uh, w- which is interesting because I, I'm not in the same state or haven't really been, I haven't been within the same state as them in over 10 years and and it, and it's so and it's so interesting watching long distance call too because um on my dad's side i don't know that much about them except that you know there's a lot of like german or french canadian in them and there's a lot of mex uh, mexican heritage as well but um this makes me wish i was closer to my grandma on my mom's side because she 
she was like born and raised in New Mexico and New Mexicans have a very interesting heritage with Native Americans and Mexicans. And they kind of created their own culture called New Mexican um, and, and New Mexico. And uh, and she's part Sioux Indian. And and I know she's trying to teach me as much as I could as as a child. And I guess maybe this is kind of like a hindsight of, of this episode is that um maybe you know rod serling or the universe was telling me that i need this relationship to where i wouldn't be struggling so much now trying to get as much information about my heritage or really creating this relationship with uh with my extended family mm-hmm. that i i wish i was that close with with uh with my grandma's cause I, I don't wa- know i don't know if you wish you were that close she called him into the core pond andy <laughs> I, I mean, I don't want to be that close to grandma. I, I mean, I get saved. I get saved later on, right? I just had to convince my dad to, to plead for my life on on a toy telephone. But I'm like, but I would, I would. Yeah, it love did work out in the end, I guess. Yeah, because I I don't know what that's like. You know, I've I've been yeah. an individual my my whole entire life. I you know I think that I stood out more than my brothers and sisters to where I was. I think I was an adult when I was seven years old. So mm-hmm. it's like, it's, uh, you know, there's, there's times where, where I wish I had that television, uh, family relationship w- with other family members, but, um, but yeah, no, I definitely not that close, but I wish I was, <laughs> you, I don't know. I mean, I would, I, that's, I definitely didn't catch this the first time I saw this episode when I was younger, but a lot of what's interesting to me about their relationship is related in, in, simply looks and eye eye contact between philip albert who played the husband chris bales and patricia smith who plays the wife sylvia bales about how they they both kind of disprove especially the wife of how close they are right you you only the only the only uh i guess point that you get that shows that there's something wrong with it i mean you see the grandmother who's doting on her on her grandson and loves him right nothing seems wrong with that the only thing that gives anything away is the look from the mom right mm-hmm. as to tell you that this has happened before yep. it is really interesting to me that she leans into her german accent because you know um lily darvis she was a pretty prominent stage actor of the time and she actually went on to continue working for 20 more years after this wow. episode which is just incredible and she and her last ep- her last movie was kind of a similar story about a woman a grandmother on her deathbed and the relationship with the wife of the husband but that they that she leaned into her german accent and i, I wondered if there was some intention of that did you notice anything about that that she says yeah and she has kind of that it might have been a different accent besides german maybe austrian i i i did not catch that you you know what i think i might have taken it as more of a stern part of a of the conversation Mm -hmm. um because i think she wanted to keep that uh i guess that spiritual connection with with billy Mm -hmm. and because it seems like you know she always wanted to isolate her herself and Billy, uh, you know, away from the parents because I think that she knew that she could still be al- alive. I don't know. I was, I was thinking some like really crazy stuff that maybe she's leeching off his, uh, you know, his life oh, force. Yeah, well, no, she said, she says at his birthday, you gave me life again. Right. He, of course, he yeah. was giving her life force, right? That maybe she, I, I, I guess so. Or, yeah. or maybe that, maybe, you know, because since children are our future, maybe that children really have that connected power to their brains to where he can bring, transfer her soul to a toy telephone. And maybe that was a plan all along before we even got to the cake scene. And, you know, that was whole, maybe it was a whole setup. It was, that was 
part of the wish, which is one of the things, you know, the wish is that, you know, three minutes exactly, you know, oh. if you guys are watching it with minute per minute, but the setup for that is at the two minute mark and at the three minute mark, we see the whole Billy sharing his wish. And, you know, of course they're going to keep it to themselves, not share it with the mom because it's mm-hmm. like, it was a setup all along. <laughs> I mean, there's so many ways to in- interpret this, but like, I think she knew exactly what was going on and she can totally be the wicked witch of the West or, you know, or that she knew that children have the special power to continue, uh, you know, have a, a soul to continue through actual life within this plane of existence. And all he needed to do is just wish for it. The simple mm-hmm. birthday wish to make that, things come true. That would happen in the Twilight Zone. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Cameron Kitt. I'm here with Andy Toe. Andy Toe, and we are talking about the episode Long Distance. Oh my gosh, I said Toe. Ugh. I mean, if you're just tuning in, I'm Cameron Kitt. I'm here with Andy Tao. We're talking about the episode Long Distance Call, the 22nd episode of the second season of the original Twilight Zone series. The plot is young five-year-old Billy and his very close grandmother um, share a deep relationship. She gives him a toy telephone right before passing away, which he ostensibly can be heard talking to her on and uh i think the way that they set it up at the end the husband kind of reveals that his his version of it is that his mother was obsessed with billy because it was a chance to have a son again and and her on her deathbed says i don't have a son he was taken away by a woman meaning the wife which is an age-old experience that wives have is back clashing with the mother-in-law especially if it's the mother-in-law of a single son And this idea of kind of a Freudian vibe that I was getting that, you know, you're taking my son from me. I thought that was a really interesting kind of very, very rich thing to start, you know, to to kind of touch on in a 25 minute episode. You you know, what's what what kind of bogged my mind a little bit is that the, the father's plead for the son to, to live that he's talking to his own mom, but But before that, when the mom freaks out and pulls Billy away, Billy keeps on screaming, you broke my phone. You broke my phone. Like, you know, it like it was a serious issue to him. It's like, is it that I no longer get to talk to grandma anymore or did you kill grandma? Mm. But, But also that, you know, he's saying that you broke the phone, but is the phone not actually completely broken because when the dad pleads for his son's life billy does make it through Mm. so i wonder that if the dad is talking the grandma must hear him but now but if, if that's true i wonder what the grandma would say on the other side that's what makes the show so good is all that mystery I want to touch on an influence to the Twilight Zone, and then I want to talk a little bit about craft, things like lighting and and filming. But have you ever heard of the show One Step Beyond? I actually have not. I've just found out about this recently. So in the 50s, a show, I highly recommend it, Andy, you really need to go watch it. In late 50s, this show came out, it was a British and American kind of collaboration, and it had a host kind of similar. I was shocked by how similar the, the kind of setup of the show was. But it's not as sci-fi as the Twilight Zone. It's the same setup, but more ESP. You know, the second episode is about a woman who's terrified of her going on her honeymoon. Um, and she keeps dreaming about drowning. And then she and her husband end up on the, t- the Titanic. Um, so it's that Whoa. kind of thing. And I felt like 
a lot of those shows, those episodes had a big influence on this because it's it was a very ESP kind of psychic power episode. And I, I thought that was really interesting. Like, I, you know, as a kid, you, you think that the Twilight Zone is the very first thing to do any of that stuff when you see it. Turns out there was probably multiple different influences and it was not the first to do kind of a fantasy, uh, I guess, variety approach. Wow. Now, yeah, now I really got to see that. You got to see I, it. It's but, on, I think it's on Amazon or Hulu. I'll look it up. Are, are they at least like a, like a decade apart? Because for what you explained so far, I, I know I got to watch the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And like, it sounds like more practical, crazy yeah, events. Yeah, it's always like somebody, like, you know, there's a guy who goes to a party and there's a girl who who's a psychic at the party and she predicts that the train's going to crash. It's not, it's, there's definitely not otherworldliness. It's just the sensation that their people could have psychic powers is kind of the basis of most of the episodes. But no, I mean, this show was only a few years apart. It was like 58, wow. 59 when it started coming out. Oh, so it was right before the Twilight mm-hmm. Zone because the Twilight mm-hmm. Zone started in. But we don't talk about it the same way, and I wonder why. I mean, I think you, I really, it's, I think you'd like them. I give them a shot. Um, so let's talk about let's talk about the stagecraft, though. I mean, there's there's some things that are similar across a lot of the Twilight Zone episodes and the way they're filmed, but I want to talk about lighting, particularly at the beginning in the 1960s. Um, something that I found out recently is that you know earlier film stock required higher key lighting. And a lot of high key lighting on set and would regularly oh, yeah. get blown out to like 30, you know, cameras <laughs> would get regularly blown out to like 3,200. And I noticed that a lot, like the lighting seems heavy. Can can you talk a little bit about that, Andy? Yeah. So um, in, in, in today's age, we all know that, you know, you go grab a Sony, you up the ISO to 120,000 <laughs> and you can see outside and you just need to denoise outside. Um, back in the day even though film is still infinite, it's still the highest quality that any digital camera can provide. Um, the cameras themselves weren't that advanced and, and we needed that separation to where you can see it as like split tone or high, low contrast, uh, style. If you're, if you're into coloring, um, but it's mostly to help separate the subject and the scenery and, and it's just because the cameras themselves weren't able to, um, I'm sorry, it, it's not just cameras. We all know that is part of the lenses too, but a lot of the lenses were built into the cameras back in the days because they had mm. the, the three lens, uh, uh, like circular motion. Sorry, I, I don't shoot with those cameras, so I can't really tell you much about it. Uh, I, I don't think many people them. shoot with the 1960 camera anymore. <laughs> no, no. And then like, people are trying to bring back Super 16 and Super 8 uh, cameras right now to do films. I would love to see those. Uh, I'm not harsh on you guys, but power to you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it, it took a lot of work and a lot of uh, extra help to really get the camera and the lens to really capture that light and see the separation of the uh, of the subject in the in the scenery to where they had to do that. And and that's why you'll see up till like the mid '90s that we always favored our subjects on the the key lighting side because the you know our cameras were always the bottleneck um when it came to film Mm. and uh and and i'm saying film as the actual material film and not just film industry um it's you know that that was you know that's really the the main reason is just because the the lack of technology to uh to calculate and suck in all that light to you know register that and print that on the the film itself 
but you know, big takeaway is the set they had to build had to have very big, hot lights uh, all over it, and it'd be blasting you pretty much constantly in order for you to be picked up clearly on these cameras. Oh yeah, I, I wouldn't doubt that. Um, probably since uh, it is a CBS project, it's probably just like uh, Star Trek. It probably had like thirty two uh, K lights all around and. I'm surprised that we don't see much of the actors or actresses uh, sweating because I know. I'm pretty sure it's a sauna in those sound yeah. stages. And and James Sheldon, the director, even mentioned this is not directly related to the lighting, but to like I think about poor Billy being on set that there were multiple moments where because his mom was his uh, on set and they went long that they were able to get a lot of shots that they wouldn't have gotten if they had reported it to the board, which is the board for children actors when these laws were coming in. So he basically admitted that they mm-hmm. broke the law multiple times filming this episode to get, to get it. Um, what else stood out to you about the cinematography as you were watching? Um, I, I, I don't want to point fingers and I don't want to say anything negative. Like I still love the episode. I still love twilight zone, but man, did I notice three different scenes having uh, a speck of dust on the lens and I could not. Oh my I gosh. Couldn't... I didn't notice. <gasps> oh, yeah. wow. That's so funny. That's the cinematographer's eye, right? Yeah. <laughs> that, that pain in your chest when you see the speck of dust on the footage is there's nothing worse. It, yeah. It, Seriously, it's my fear all the time, especially uh, being a one-man band, doing documentaries, and uh, just always being in a rush. It's uh, it's a fear of mine. So, it yeah, that's going to be the first thing I notice. Um, but the reason why I really notice it is uh, is because of the tracking shots, the way they, they use the, the dolly in some of the scenes. I, I knew it existed. I know uh, Charlie Chaplin uses it all all the time, but I didn't really notice that much movement in some of the shots in Twilight Zone until I really watched this, and then I had to go back to other episodes because I still think of a lot of these black and white uh, shows as like a beginning filmmaker to where everything's going to be static and on sticks. But you know, but sound stages had dollies, they had track systems, and. And I never seen it really happen outside of like a you know a dolly zoom or some crazy effect. Like they actually use it as a as a narrative piece, and I'm like, I gained more appreciation of what these filmmakers did back then. And I'm like, you guys pushed the envelope. It's like, you know, me doing a five to fifteen second steady cam shot, and I'm like, you know, I I have a huge hunger for that. But for you guys, just just to pull it off and to really push that narrative of what's happening in that moment. I'm like, that's cool. Good for you guys. <laughs> like, I don't know. I just wasn't expecting that. And it happens a lot in this episode. I'm like, wow, you guys actually like went for it. I don't think I've seen this much dolly shots in an episode of like star Trek or, uh, or, or even the to serve man. It's, it's like, I think it was pretty dynamic actually especially since what you know putting like uh three to five uh characters all in a single frame like oh yeah that it like that doesn't happen much in a lot of twilight zone episodes it's a lot of a single subject uh single subjects in frame because it's all about having that isolation Mm -hmm. and any if you learn the the rules of thirds like you know offsetting a, a character on the frame can really make you feel that you know you're in that moment you know that something's not right because it's not positioned right and 
yeah, I, I, I can kind of go on and on and sideways about this, but like, I don't know, it, it really kind of blew my mind of like something so simple that's, that existed back then, but for them to overly do it in a, in a correct way, I, I thought that was just awesome. I mean, an, another reason that this is, a I think, a triumph is I mentioned that it's one of six videotaped episodes. Um, and I want to expand on that a little bit because I thought when I first started watching it, I was like, wow, the frame rate seems high. Like something's different, right? Like something felt different about the way the film. And it's because in season two, uh, the by the time they had filmed half of their episodes, CBS said, you guys are spending too much money. They wanted to keep the budget at $65,000 per episode, which LOL, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> so six they decided okay. to do six episodes on videotape and then transfer them to 16 millimeter film instead of what they'd already been doing. Um, but they felt too soap opera-y. So five of those six episodes just did not work. This is the only one that really works, right? It's the only one that didn't reveal the sets to look like sets and see, you know, it, like there were a lot of issues with the videotape format. And that's why I'm even more impressed by it is because I was in awe of this episode and they were working with even worse budgetary restraints, right? They were filming on a, basically a lower quality. I don't know if it's videotape was lower quality, but a, a different quality than, than the film stock and, and film system that they were traditionally using. And he made it work. James Sheldon made it work. The team made it work. And it, it, it feels smooth. I like all the gliding dolly shots a lot. That's maybe why it feels like you're in a place because you kind of feel like you're in the house, right? Yeah. But, but also think about film is like recording in raw digitally and a videotape is like recording a proxy or uh, a ProRes file with baked in color. Like that's that's the difference. And it's kind of like. But they also, didn't have that in the 60s. They didn't have it no, was no, digital. No, 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 right? no, but that I guess. But, but that's the only way to I can think that a way oh, to, to explain. Could, yeah. To, to, to explain it's half it. quality. Right. Yeah. And, and also that videotape is more consistent where film they had the individual frames separated. So there is those the the slit at the bottom and top of each frame that is going to be that's what really creates that motion blur because it's like it registers the clip and then the next clip is trying to catch up but also register at the same time and that's kind of like the difference of recording 23.97 versus 24 even so 24 even is kind of like videotape because it's continuous but film it it is continuous but there's still a break in between each frame and so that's kind of like one of the reasons it's like layman's terms of like reason why um, in feature films we record in, you know, 23.97, then really 24 frames even. Mm -hmm. I, I like getting technical. Sorry. <laughs> that's why you're here is to tell us, like, tell me why. Like that to me makes this even more impressive. Um, and to come back to what you were talking about with Rod Serling and, and when you made that um, 60th anniversary feature that was shown in theaters, learning about what a great guy he was. Part of the reason when I was looking into like what overarching, like what connects the Twilight Zone episodes, what, what makes them similar across things, because there's not a lot that's that similar really, right? It's, they're all very different. And I think that's actually the secret is that Rod Serling's approach to the show was to really fight for creative integrity and hire only the best people and only the best directors. And that was a challenge for him, but you know, James Sheldon was kind of one of his protégés and he was very pushy about, you know, giving them creative freedom to do whatever he thought was imaginative with the scripts. That's something that Sheldon said. Rod encouraged you to do whatever he thought would be imaginative with the scripts, which again, just sounds so dreamy today. Like, I can't imagine the showrunners for Black Mirror, you know, hiring a director to be like, do whatever you want. 
this just be creative you know I, maybe that's how they yeah. are but the, he, he had the sway and the ability to he understood that you know finding the, the best talent and giving them the reins is the way to make the best content y- y- yes uh I, there's so much i want to say on this without uh without being negative towards others or or, or companies but it's uh it is very rare to where we get to be in that situation. And we are now seeing that become more popular thanks to uh, us nerds who love sci-fi and fantasy that we are now being more spoken up for what we do want to see. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're seeing a lot of, uh, you know, writers, directors, uh, actors and actresses and, and other people in our industry, like getting the the spotlight that they deserve and we're seeing that now in our big properties that we love like the expanse star oh my gosh. wars yes. it's like it's it's like even taika watiki you know you know filming you know this guy did what we did in the shadows i love taika he, amazing guy oh but he's but so, for him so hot like, uh, <laughs> i would go gay for that man not gonna lie <laughs> um <laughs> hashtag <laughs> There's there's others. Sorry, you know, you know, Seth Green, Kevin Smith. You, you guys come first. You're my first loves. Don't of worry. Of course. Um, <laughs> um, but it's like you know, it's the, the these guys. You know, they're 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 brilliant for what they do. But it's like now they're getting the recognition. And even uh, Patty Jenkins, you know, doing Wonder Woman. It's like, you know, these people thrived in the indie universe. You know, mm-hmm. or just living off the festivals. And for them to get the spotlight that they deserve, or get, or just showing that we don't have to commercialize our industry and, you know, bring back the craft. It's, you know, I, I guess 60 years later, we're, we're now seeing that. And it's, I'm, I'm glad it is because it, it gives us more space, you know, as independent filmmakers to, uh, you know, have hope that there's bigger spectrums for us to achieve, you know? And I, I guess we would have to thank Rod Serling for that yeah. because he's the one who really made it happen. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's, it's, it's a really, it, yeah, it's interesting to think about that, right? 60 years and the, the principle is still true. And Taika Waititi is a great example because giving it indie filmmakers who are the best, right? The, the giving the talented people, the reins give, you know, he took Thor Ragnarok, and made it one of the highest rated and it was a huge box office smash right so it turns out oh, yeah. there is like an roi there's a good there's a good business case to giving these people the creativity and it's really nice to be able to see that happening like you said from a representation standpoint across you know race and gender um you know i have mixed feelings about the way they represent the trans characters in the new star wars i'm um, sorry gosh in the new star trek episodes but i'm still glad for the baseline to be established right we're we're we still have a ways to go and I would love to see what people say in a, um, 60 more years, right. About how those things have influenced. Um, it, it's, it's interesting. You brought that up and I, I, I just have to say this. Um, I, I've been in a week long argument with people on Reddit about this certain, uh, situation about as so someone wrote uh, a post about, uh, uh, it's on unpopular opinion, uh, subreddit. If you guys are interested mm-hmm. is, uh, it was an actual female that came out and she said that she's tired of the extreme feminism and TV and film. And 
I have to agree with her. Yes, I am a 33-year-old white male, and I know that's, you know, someplace where maybe I shouldn't be speaking from, but uh, for what has been achieved through Twilight Zone, uh, Star Trek original series, and mostly Star Trek Voyager, uh, you know, I salute you, Captain Jane, all the way. Um, We've been normalizing the future of people of color women uh equality and all that in sci-fi and fantasy and i know everything is mostly based in the future but we achieve so much nowadays and i know a lot of us learn from what we see on the screen i i wish that we can act like it's normal and still like uh charge and move forward and empower ourselves or empower the females and, and people of color uh to you know reach the goals or be where they where they should be you know because we're all human beings like we should be on equal field and we see that a lot in sci-fi and fantasy and i wish that we we could be leave, living in that normal and i would love to be there and or and or i would love to help bring others into that position and that's the reason why i i created these uh production companies because like why haven't we i i feel like this should have been done when Vo- when voyager was on like that yeah. is such a great show of it's science like women and that you know being an individual and part of a collective at the same time it's like uh i don't know there's a lot to be learned from uh fictional content folks <laughs> and those episodes still hold up i think okay i wrote a paper about this when i was in school and i i it it has shocked me a lot but gene roddenberry understood something and i think the twilight zone to an extent also plays into this that representing it's about showing and representing the future in the way that you want it is why i've always been so obsessed and attracted to the star trek universe is because i want to live in that future but that if you paint the picture of the future it subconsciously embeds itself in our minds and we subconsciously work towards it we would not have cell phones if it weren't for Star Trek and we wouldn't have mm-hmm. sliding doors and we wouldn't, we literally are doing work with plasma because of the shields. Like the science of today is being influenced by that show and the things that people watched. And I think it's important to continue to represent. That's why the expanse is so good. There's not a single white female main character in that show. And I love that. Right. Because the future is going to be Brown. That's the future. People are, yep. are going to be like, it's just the way it is. And I representing it really it's great. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think you need to bat people over the head with it. You just need to show it. And then we all work towards it. Yes, exactly. And it's funny that, you know, I, I did want to touch base on this, but I guess now it, it finally fits into the conversation is that what, what really intrigues me, especially, you know, uh, for what I think the sort of typical thought of, you know, the fifties and the sixties is, is that, you know, it, being the American man, you're not really, you know, connect with your family. You're kind of just there just to be there. But like the way that Billy's dad was the way he broke himself down to be emotional mm-hmm. and tell him how life is and mm-hmm. that, you know, that you're going to experience others facing death. And it's like, I, I think that was very forward thinking for the Twilight Zone to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and watching that, I'm just like, if I watch another uh, piece of old content from another property, 
it's still going to be that grumpy old dude who's like distant from his family. He's messing up. And then, yeah, he'll have that silver lining that he needs to be a better person. But the fact that the dad was already doing that and you have a hint of kind of that old way of being a male still kind of exists, but for him to be more 90% of being an open human being and just being totally upfront with his son, I thought that was a huge achievement. Mm, yeah talking just being willing to talk about how do we talk about death with children is a it's so touchy and they just go full force into it so with only about a minute left Andy as as filmmakers especially indie filmmakers what can we learn from this episode I I know today's times like we all want to say that we're storytellers and we are but we live in a technological world now Mm. and that is growing faster than ourselves, even though we grow to be a hundred years old or, or something that there there's things moving faster than us. And I encourage others to move twice as fast as that either it's content based of what are the trends are or, or it's the technology. Um, always be ahead of the curve and you're going to notice that when you're going to create your first feature film and you're going to realize that a lot of films you're you're doing is like creating micro businesses you are the ultimate business person because this is showbiz and i want you to always think ahead you know if you think of something new plan it right now write it down and make a plan to where you could achieve that one way or another because if if you don't something is going to make you do it either it's a software update on your editing software or it's the deadline of submitting to Sundance I want I want to encourage everyone to plan prep and achieve ahead of time mm. wow that was amazing Well, Andy, I just want to say thank you so much for um, kind of bringing this episode to my life again. And I will, it will, it will always be in my mind. Um, Where can people find you if they want to get in touch? Definitely not social media, even though, (laughs) even though it's still active and it's a very East Coast thing, but I, for being 33 years old, I'm very old fashioned. Uh, You can hit me up on my website. Okay. IMDB or LinkedIn. Um, nice. I, yeah, even if you have questions of, about the industry, I love sharing knowledge. Hit me up. I am willing to answer anything. And uh, if there's a way to give a virtual high five, if someone invents that some way or another, uh, let's make that happen. All right. You heard it here. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. This is the 38th episode of They Came From Outer Space. I'm Cameron Kitt. Andy, thanks for coming. Thank you. This is fun. It's our secret, isn't it? Nobody knows but us. Can I have a chocolate ice cream bar? <laughs> <laughs>